Today we're going to spend a few minutes covering some very basic principles of the faith about which there seems to be a massive amount of confusion even among folks that are making serious efforts to be good Catholics. So these are three basic principles. Hopefully none of this should really be particularly amazing. All right, let's get started. The first basic principle, God knows everything. Now, we know that God knows everything, but have we ever spent any time thinking about what the implications are? The fact that God knows everything means that he never changes his mind. It means God can never change his mind. He never has a new idea. He can't have a new idea. And why can't he have a new idea? Because he can't learn anything. And he hasn't forgot anything. He's God He fits the job description. That means he knows everything. He didn't forget anything. He's not going to come up with a great new idea, change his mind, or whatever. It also means that, of course, he doesn't need our advice on how to run his universe. He didn't forget anything. He isn't going to remember anything. He knows it all, and he never changes his mind. So the first basic principle is God knows everything, and he isn't going to change his mind on anything, period. Second basic principle God has made it possible for each one of us here on earth to know just exactly what he thinks on every issue necessary for our salvation. As we all know from both scripture and tradition, God actually established an organization that will last until the very end of time. That's the Catholic Church. And within the church, he appointed certain infallible teachers just to make sure we know exactly what he thinks on every salvation issue that's necessary for us. He started with St. Peter and the other apostles, and then their successors, the Pope and the bishops, in union with him. Okay. On another day, we'll go into details on that, but for right now, we're just going to have the Reader's Digest condensed version, all right? Here's three ways that we can tell if something is infallibly taught by the Catholic Church, which is another way of saying here are three ways we can tell if something has been positively revealed by God. Now remember, this is not a complete explanation. Number one, whenever some truth of our holy faith has been taught always and everywhere by all. That's the principle of St. Vincent de Lorenz, always, everywhere, by all. We'll explain why that is later, but for right now, we need to know what it means. It means that whenever we see a truth that's been taught always, Everywhere throughout the church by all the orthodox teachers of the Catholic faith. For example, we know it's from God. For example, the truth that women cannot be ordained to the priesthood has been taught always and everywhere by all. So that's an infallible truth that comes to us from God. We actually don't need a papal pronouncement to tell us that. Even though there was one, we don't need one because we know it. It's always, everywhere, by all. Okay, two. Whenever the decisions of an ecumenical council, a general council of the church, are presented as having been revealed by God himself and taught by our Lord and the apostles. For example, in the decree on the Most Holy Eucharist from the Council of Trent, the Council Fathers state explicitly that they are, and I will quote, transmitting that sound and genuine doctrine which the Catholic Church, instructed by Lord Jesus Christ himself and by his apostles and taught by the Holy Spirit, has always held and will preserve even to the end of time, close quote. So this decree tells us that it contains infallible truths which come to us from God. Whenever a general council says that these things have been revealed by God and handed on 
taught by Lord and Apostles. That's how we know that. Third way, whenever the Pope speaks ex cathedra, that's a statement, a papal statement that has four distinct qualities. There's four qualities. So the Pope, first quality, the Pope speaks by a virtue of his apostolic authority. The second quality is with intention of making a definite decision. The third is on a matter of faith or morals. And the fourth is to be held definitely by the church throughout the world. So apostolic authority, definite decision, faith and morals, and then for the whole church throughout the world. Okay, for example, the definition of the Immaculate Conception of Our Lady by Blessed Pius IX contains each of these qualities, which tells us that it's an ex cathedra statement and also tells us that it's therefore an infallible truth that comes to us from God. Listen, and I'll point them out as we go. Quote, By the authority of our Lord Jesus Christ, of the blessed apostles Peter and Paul, and by our own authority, there he's invoking his apostolic authority, we declare, pronounce, and define, there he's pointing out he's making a definite decision, that the doctrine which holds that the most blessed Virgin Mary at the first instant of her conception by a singular grace and privilege of Almighty God and virtue of the merits of Christ Jesus, the Savior of the human race, was preserved immaculate from all stain of original sin, has been revealed by God, that's a matter of faith, and on this account must be firmly and constantly believed by all the faithful. There he stands for the whole church throughout the world, close quote, the vicar of Christ. So, the second basic principle, we saw three examples of infallibility, but the second basic principle is that God did not establish an invisible church of true believers. God did not establish an invisible church of true believers. God has actually established a visible church of true teachers, the Catholic Church, so that we could know without any shadow of a doubt exactly what he thinks in every salvation issue. And then we've given three examples where we know infallibly when something's been taught always and everywhere by all through the, by the Catholic teachers throughout the world and time. When, when things, an ecumenical council points out that this is revealed by God and been, ha- been taught by Christ and the apostles, and when a pope makes an ex cathedra statement. Now, that's not all of them, but that's just some, so we have the idea. Okay, third basic principle. God gave the church the power to teach in his name, but he did not hand over to the church the power to change his teachings. This is important. It's actually easy to see why that has to be true. The church, the Catholic church, speaks as the voice of God in the world. It speaks in the name of God as the official witness for his savings truths. This means the church teachings can never change. The dogmas proposed by the church for our belief, the official teachings of the Catholic church can never change. In fact, not even the Pope can change or eliminate any of the teachings of the church as we can see from the infallible teaching of the First Vatican Council. Quote, The popes had defined that those matters must be held, which, with God's help, they have recognized as an agreement with sacred scripture and apostolic tradition. For the Holy Spirit was not promised to the successors of St. Peter that by his revelation they might disclose new doctrine, but that by his help they might religiously guard and faithfully explain the revelation or deposit of faith that was handed down through the apostles, close quote, the infallible teaching of Vatican I. This tells us what the role of the Holy Father is. It's not to reveal no doctrine at all. No, he guards and faithfully explains the revelation or deposit of faith that was handed down. That's what he does. He's a guardian, and he's also one that explains it. 
That's his role. It's not to come up with something new. That's not the role of the Pope. New stuff ended with the death of the last apostle, St. John. Nothing new since the death of St. John. Okay, what does this mean? It means that no one, not even the, up to and not even including the Pope himself, no one can change or eliminate the teachings of the church. And that's not all. No one, not even the Pope, can change the traditional understanding of what these dogmas mean. Quote, any meaning of the sacred dogmas that has once been declared by Holy Mother Church must always be retained. And there must be never, must never be any deviation from that meaning on the specious grounds of a more profound understanding. Dot, dot, dot. If anyone says that as science progresses, it is sometimes possible for dogmas that have been proposed by the Church to receive a different meaning from the one which the Church understood and understands, let him be anathema. Close quote. The infallible teaching of Vatican I. What are we saying? We're saying that not only is it impossible for anyone, and this is up to and including the Holy Father himself, to change or eliminate any teachings of the Church, it's also impossible for anyone up to and including the Holy Father himself to change the meanings of the particular dogmas. For example, the Church has made it perfectly clear what she means by the real presence of our Lord in the most blessed sacrament of the altar. We all know that. The church teaches that the real presence means that our Lord is truly, really, and substantially present. Body, blood, soul, and divinity. That the whole Christ is present in the most blessed sacrament of the altar. And that's it. That's what the real presence means. It's cut and dry. And because we know what the real presence means, that means that absolutely no one can start weaseling around and try to say the real real presence means something other than this. But is this a problem today? You bet it is. For example, just consider all these, uh, let's call them confused individuals that play these crazy word games and try to claim that what real presence means is that our Lord is really present in the most blessed sacrament in the same sense that he's really present in the Holy Scriptures or he's really present in the gathering faithful. Okay, that's just one of the, the strange things that I've heard. All right. Here's a brief quote from Pope Paul VI in his encyclical Mysterium Fidei, which he issued during the Second Vatican Council, in which he warns, he's warning us about these very attempts to change or eliminate teachings of the church or to change the meanings of particular teachings. And I've edited it for the sake of time. Quote, there are reasons for serious pastoral concern and anxiety. Indeed, there are some who spread about it abroad opinions which disturb the faithful and fill their minds with no little confusion about matters of faith. It is as if everyone were permitted to consign to oblivion doctrine already defined by the church or else to interpret it in such a way as to weaken the genuine meaning of the words or the recognized force of the concepts involved. Close quote, the vicar of Christ. It is as if everyone were permitted to consign to oblivion doctrine already defined by the church. That's the first problem. Or else to interpret it in such a way as to weaken the genuine meaning of the words or the recognized force of the concepts involved. There's the second problem. Okay, so not even the Pope can change or eliminate any of the teachings of the church or even change the traditional understanding of just what exactly those teachings mean 
But that's still not all. No one can even change the traditional terminology used in the dogmas. In other words, if over the course of time the church has established and approved certain phrases or precise words, set forms of words to explain the truths of our faith, one simple example, a word like transubstantiation, once the church has established that, then no one, and that includes everyone, right up to and including the Holy Father, no one can change them. Here's an explanation of this very point taken from the same encyclical, Paul VI. I've also shortened it for the sake of time. Quote, it is necessary to safeguard the proper mode of expression of the faith, lest by the careless use of words we cause, God forbid, the rise of false opinions regarding faith. The church has established a rule of language and confirmed it with the authority of the councils. This rule, which more than once has been the watchword and banner of orthodox faith, must be religiously preserved and let no one presume to change it at his own pleasure or under the pretext of new science. Close quote, the vicar of Christ. What's the point? The point is the Pope is insisting that the precise theological terms which have been established throughout the ages be used with no substitutions. In the encyclical, he specifically mentions, for example, the word transubstantiation and warns that instead of this term, which must be used, warns that if bad terminology is being used, it's going to cause problems and is causing problems. Is this still a problem today, 40 years after the encyclical? You bet it is. I'll give two examples. I could have gone after some big names, but then I just decided we'll just use some down-home examples. First, a parish priest was saying all kinds of strange and confusing things about the real presence, which prompted someone to politely ask him a question about transubstantiation. And the priest just dismissed his question with a wave of his hands. Oh, we don't use that term anymore. We don't use the term transubstantiation anymore? What's this we stuff, huh? Who is we? Because we sure doesn't include we Catholics. It's always, always been a matter of conviction. I'll quote you right here. It's always been a matter of conviction in the Church of God. And now this Holy Synod declares it again, that by the consecration of the bread and wine, a conversion takes place of the whole substance of bread into the substance of the body of Christ our Lord and the whole substance of the wine into the substance of his blood. This conversion is appropriately and properly called transubstantiation by the Catholic Church. Close quote, the Council of Trent. In other words, we Catholics still use that term, and we Catholics will use that term till the end of the world. Period. Close the book. That's the first example. Second example, we've probably all encountered some of these poor, confused folks who are, uh, you know, dazed by feminism and play all these crazy word games. For some reason, at the local parish that I used to go to in college, some of these deluded individuals couldn't bear to use the word man and used to substitute the word person. There's a lot that could be said about that. and Believe me, I've probably said it. But for today, let's just point out for the record, these are not synonyms. All persons are. It's true that uh, men are persons, but not all persons are men. In fact, there are actually three kinds of persons. There are human persons, like you and I. There are angelic persons. Those are the angels, and those are the devils, and there are the divine persons, the Father, Son, and the Holy Ghost. Okay, so what have we seen so far in this third section? We've seen that the teachings of the church and dogmas can never change. 
We've also seen that the meanings of those dogmas can never change. And we've also seen that the theological terms established by the church not be toyed with. They cannot be changed. But before we end this section, let's stand back from all this. And inspired by Father Harrison, let's use some common sense. Just imagine that we've all been impaneled. We're sitting on a jury and we're listening to a witness. And this witness is swearing that he watched the defendant hit the victim with a baseball bat at noon in a city park. A couple days later, we're still in trial, and the same witness gets up and he says something totally different. Suddenly he swears he saw the defendant hit the victim with a chair in a bar about one in the morning. So on the one hand, he's expecting us to believe the defendant clobbered the guy with a bat at noon in a park, the other time in a bar fight after midnight. To top it off, he says, yeah, I know I changed part of my story, but I still swear the defendant did it. What are we going to think about this man? Unless we're totally nuts, we're going to think, you liar. You complete liar. This is serious. A man's on trial, and you've sworn to lies. Unless we're complete fools, we're not going to believe anything that comes out of that guy's mouth from that point on, are we? Unless we can actually verify it. Well, okay. What's the church doing? The church is standing up as a witness in the world and saying, this is really how it is. This is the gospel truth. And a few of those truths are pretty hard to take, aren't they? God says we must do this and we can't do that. Somewhere in those Ten Commandments, everyone has a problem, excepting, of course, Our Lady. Somewhere in the Ten Commandments, thanks, Adam, everybody has a problem. So the church stands up in the world and says, day after day, year after year, decade after decade, century after century, God says that's how it really is. And if she ever even wavered on one thing, on one thing, what would we think? We'd think the same thing we thought about that guy changing his sworn testimony about the power fight, and so would everybody else. So would everybody else. The teachings of the church can never change. Oh, sure, some practices can change. You know, the, the, the sanctuary lamp, that's beeswax. It used to have to be olive oil, but the church allows us now to use beeswax candles instead of olive oil lamp. It used to be forbidden. I mean, we give Easter eggs because it used to be forbidden to eat eggs and dairy products during Lent, but the church has changed that practice. So some practice can change. If... They involve a matter of discipline. God did give his church power to do that. But the teaching of the church with respect to the deposit of faith, the truths which God has revealed, the truths that come to us from Christ, that can never change because it expresses the teaching of Christ himself. And God never changes his mind. Let's close. Today we took a quick look at three basic principles. One, God knows everything, and he isn't going to change his mind on anything. Two, God actually established a visible church of true teachers, the Catholic Church, a living, infallible teaching authority, so that we could know without any shadow of a doubt exactly everything we need to know on issues that concern our salvation. Three, the teachings of the church, the dogmas, can never change. The meanings of those dogmas can never change, and even the terms used by the church to explain those dogmas, can never change. Look, as the apostasy and the confusion in the church and the society increases, we should not be surprised or discouraged. We should even expect to see 
that or hear that this inconvenient church teaching or that inconvenient church teaching has been updated or changed or that now we have to understand it in a new or different or more nuanced manner or the traditional terms weren't accurate enough or that needs to be put in modern language, etc., etc., etc. We need to expect these kind of things. We don't need to be surprised or discouraged at all. It shouldn't affect our faith in the slightest. No matter what kind of nonsense we hear, we can remain calm and confident. The teachings of the church are truths which, as St. James puts it in today's epistles, which come to us from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no change or shadow of alteration. Amen.